Hey, good morning, GBC. Uh, this morning we're beginning to walk through uh, the Gospel of Luke together, which I'm, I'm really, really excited about. Um, if you remember back at Christmas time, that feels like five years ago now, but back at Christmas we, we looked at the first couple of chapters of Luke uh, during our season of Advent, and today we're going to kind of pick back up a little bit where we left off and begin to walk through Luke uh, for a big portion of 2020 together. Uh, you might be asking right now, why Luke? Why are we going through Luke? And uh, if you look at chapter 1, verse 4 of Luke, we see that Luke, who's writing this uh, account of the gospel of Jesus, um, he's writing to someone named Theophilus. And he says the reason why he's writing this gospel account is so that Theophilus might have certainty concerning the things that he has been taught about Jesus. So this gospel account is really a word of affirmation. Theophilus has heard about Jesus, and yet now he's writing to him and to all of us in order that we would be certain about Jesus. We'd be certain about Jesus. So he can be certain about the main things in life and how those main things affect secondary things. Um, I don't know if you knew this, but you can actually be certain about things in life. Did you know that? You can be certain about things in life. Many of us might feel like there is nothing that we can be certain about these days. We're, we're still thinking about maybe summer plans, and I have no certainty about how my summer plans are going to work out. I mean, we thought even today that uh, as I'm preaching this, that we were going to reopen as a county, and now we know we're not. So certainty seems to be something that is outside of our grasp these days. But there is at least one thing that you and I can be certain about in this life, and that's it's never changing. We can be certain about Jesus, about who He is, about what He's done, and about what He's calling us into right now, right now. If Luke is all about Jesus, uh, which is what it's all about, it's interesting that Luke begins with and spends considerable time talking about John the Baptist. Um, we, need, we need to know something about John the Baptist, apparently, according to Luke. So what is it about John that is so important to Luke? Uh, well, the whole reason John is here in these first few chapters is it's honestly is to direct our attention somewhere else. John is here to point the finger. It's, it's to direct our eyes to someone else, to direct our eyes to someone else. He points our attention to God's true King, our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, John is trying to get us ready for God's King to arrive. That's what John's doing. And when somebody important is coming to visit, you need to get ready, don't you? Anytime somebody important or you perceive as important is coming to visit you, you feel the need to get your house ready. Even right now in our family, we're trying to sell our home. And uh, as it's listed and people are coming to see our house, we have to kind of keep it in tip-top shape and get things cleaned up, sometimes within an hour's time, just so when people come, that it'll be ready for them to see the house because they're gonna come into our house and they're gonna judge the house based upon how it looks. We do this all the time. When people come to our house, we get it ready because we need to prepare in order to receive those people. See, when someone important comes to visit, you need to get ready. You need to get ready. So when we look at John, we see what we should do in order to prepare for God's coming king. We see what we should do in order to prepare for God's coming king. You might be asking right now, you know, why is this relevant to me? I mean, aren't we past all of this? Jesus has already come. I believe that. Um, and yes, he has. He has come. But the Bible actually tells us that Jesus 
not only came once, but he is going to come again in the fullness of his glory. And he's going to judge the earth and he's going to establish his kingdom forever. And so you and I need to be ready for that. We need to be ready for that. We must prepare because Jesus is coming to step foot inside the doors of your heart. He's coming to step foot inside the doors of your heart. So this passage calls us to prepare for that. And here's, here's what we see this morning. We see a few things. Number one, we see in verses 1 through 6 what John was called to do. What John was called to do. In verse 7 through 14, we see what we are called to do. And in verse 15 and 20, we see what John and us can't do. What we can't do. So let's look at this verses 1 through 6. What was John called to do? Read here with me. It says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Ananias and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Um, if you look back at the beginning of Luke chapter 1, verse 52, we saw this at Christmas time. You see Mary's uh, Magnificat. It's a famous song. It's a poem um, here in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. And in that poem, we see a key verse that honestly is, uh, it's really the key verse of the entire Gospel of Luke. And this is what it says. It says, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. This is what Mary proclaims in the Magnificat, and this is a key verse that we need to keep in mind as we go through the Gospel of Luke. And we are confronted with that, that idea immediately here, because what do we see? Well, we begin with the mighty on their thrones. Uh, in verses 1 and the beginning of verse 2, most of the leaders that are mentioned here were not very nice people. Just for example, Tiberius Caesar, uh, we see his name in verse 1. And uh, Farrar, who is a commentator, tells us about Tiberius Caesar this. He says, At this period of his reign, he retired to the island of Caprea, where he plunged into horrible private excesses, while his public administration was most oppressive and bloody. Well, what's the point? I mean, why list all these people? Well, it helps us date maybe when John the Baptist begins his ministry. But more than that, when John begins his controversial ministry, society was going in the wrong direction, you could say. Power was on the side of evil. But God still said, yeah, this is the perfect time. This is the time to send the Messiah. Okay? So decades have passed since the miraculous births of John and Jesus. And finally, we're told here in verse 2, what? That the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, guys, this echoes all the Old Testament prophets in, in the way that their calling is received. And John, we see even here, he is a prophet. This is the first time that God has raised up a prophet 
in over 400 years. And he is the prophet who's going to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah. And we see that spelled out in verses 4 through 6. So what is it that John is called to do as a prophet? What is he called to do? Well, in a very broad sense, we see that summed up in verse 4. He's called to do what? To prepare the way of the Lord. To prepare the way of the Lord. Now, we know in the context of this chapter that that's a reference to Jesus, that Jesus is this Lord that this is referring to. But in Isaiah, you see the word Lord in all capital letters, right? Which when our English Bibles do that, that's telling you that that word is actually the covenant name of God for his people, Yahweh. So this is the name of God, basically, right? So in other words, Jesus is God in human flesh. So in other words, you guys, this is not just a, a royal visit from an important person that's coming, okay? This is a divine visit. And in verses four through six, look at what's happening. The preparation for the arrival of this king is equated to creating level paths so that the Lord can enter. This is, this is like the image of, of rolling out a red carpet for royalty to arrive in order to receive the arrival of a special person. I don't know if you've ever gone to a red carpet event before, but um, back when I was in college in Southern California, I got free tickets to go to this R&B Music Awards show, and I thought it was going to be pretty awesome. We got to go to the red carpet, and all these people roll up in their cars and come out of the the vehicles, and I'll be honest with you, I'd listened to a bunch of R&B growing up, and I didn't recognize anybody, okay? And so we're in this humongous theater. It's, everyone's dressed up. It's this big ordeal. And as every single award is given out, whoever's name it is, some of the names are really big, like Mariah Carey and whoever else, every single time the person would say, and Mariah Carey is unable to be with us tonight, but on her behalf, we accept this award, this kind of thing, right? So I was all geared up for this really big event, and I I felt privileged to be at this place, even then we're in all this fancy gear, all this fancy theater, all this kind of stuff. It was not a significant event. It was really overblown, okay? I can't even remember the name of the award show, right? You see, just because there's a red carpet doesn't mean it's an important event or a person, But what if the red carpet is being rolled out over valleys that are being filled up, over mountains that are being brought down, over paths that are being straightened out, right? What if all of creation is seen as preparing for the arrival of somebody? Well, then that red carpet event would not be overblown, would it? Right? It should catch my attention. It should catch your attention. So what is John How does John prepare the way of the Lord? If he's called to prepare the way, if that's what he's called to do, how does he go about doing that calling? Well, we we see it almost here. It's like a a frame around a painting, right? A frame is meant to just show you, direct your eyes towards the actual painting. Well, the frame here in these passages, you have have part of the frame is sort of this this historical context in verses 1 and 2. And then we have the rest of the frame is sort of this... Um, Old Testament promised hope in verses 4 through 6. And right in the middle, we have the painting of what John is called to do, of what preparing the way looks like. What's he doing? Verse 2 and 3, he's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Guys, what John is called to do is to confront people of the reality of their sin, to prepare for the arrival of this king, right? 
he, he, he does so by heightening our consciousness of sin. That's what he's doing. And you might ask an honest question, why in the world do people need to prepare for the coming of God's king in this way? Well, the answer, well, it's because God's king is not only coming in salvation, he's also coming in judgment. Right? This, is, this is the prominent theme that runs throughout our passage. This is a judgment that's coming. And the reality of this judgment generates what it is that we're called to do. That's the second thing we see in verses 7 through 14, what we are called to do. Let's read in, in these verses here. Verse 7 says, He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized, and he said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not exhort, extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Verse 7 begins again by saying, when everybody goes out to the crowds to see John the Baptist, he says to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. I mean, man, what a jarring message uh, to begin with. Okay, John has had quite a bit of airtime here in the Gospel of Luke, and the very first time that we actually hear him speak, he's calling people that, by the way, are coming out to receive his ministry and experience his ministry. He calls them a brood of vipers, which a brood is, is kind of like these, these baby snakes, okay? So this is not this is kind of a jarring way to begin a relationship with somebody, okay? So vipers were commonly believed at this time to eat their way out of their mother's womb. That's kind of gross, right? With that in mind, we imagine John's calling of the crowd viper's offspring. It's honestly a little bit nastier than just calling them snakes, right? But here we see this first warning. What is it? Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Serpents were often seen, uh, apparently, uh, fleeing from a burning field. And so John says, you're kind of just like that, right? That that's, seems to be what you're doing. Isn't John wanting people to repent? I mean, this is his calling. Isn't he wanting them to repent? Isn't that what he's called to do? I mean, why take this approach? Why the name calling, that kind of thing? Well, John calls the people snakes to do what? To warn them that their heart is not right and that his words must be taken seriously. No, no casual response will do. Eternal realities are at stake, you guys. The greater the cost, the more severe the warning. Right? I see this in my parenting even. I don't know why my kids all have their own beds in their own rooms, because for some reason, they all just want to sleep on the floor uh, with each other in the same room. So me and my wife joke that we should just get a two-bedroom house and, and we'll be happy, okay? But every night we put them to, we put them to bed and they want to sleep on, in, the, in the same room together, uh, we have to tell them, right, you, you, you need to be quiet, you need to go to sleep, you know, because that's the goal, it's, it's sleep. And if you can't, we're going to have to put you in your own room, right? We're warning them that if they can't do what they need to do because that's best for them, 
that I'm going to have to kind of punish them by putting them in their own bed. I mean, go figure, right? It's not a very severe warning, right? Because it's not a severe issue. But the other day, I go outside and my sons have these rocks probably this big and they're just chucking them at the ground and they don't even notice their three-year-old whose sister who's right next to them. And that's what I see, you know, just one slip, one, one misdirection of the throw and that could hit their sister and mean a much more severe consequence. So my warning to them was not, hey boys, you know, you know I wasn't as casual as I would be at night, right? My, my warning was much more severe and I won't, I won't repeat that right now. Why? Because if they miscalculate, the consequences are way more severe, okay? Do you see? The more severe the warning, the more severe, the more seriousness is needed in considering it. Right, he's wanting them to come to grips with who they are, and he anticipates even that these people, these Jewish people, are probably, they won't, they won't think that he's challenging them. Right? He anticipates it. He says, basically, you must be saying in your heads, ah, he must not be talking about us. We have Abraham as our father. But John says, no, no, no. He calls it out before they even have a chance to speak, right? They think they're safe because they have Abraham as their father, but, but he, he still calls them snakes. He says, you're not ready yet. Okay, you're not getting it. No matter your heritage, the lesson is the same. Everyone needs to get ready for the coming of this king. Everyone even you and me. Do do you realize this morning that apart from Christ, you are in danger? You're in danger. And we could not heed the warnings and act like life is normal, but one day we'll realize that that danger, that warning was for our good. I don't know if you remember back um, in 2004 on Boxing Day, December 26th, the horrific um, Indian Ocean tsunami that hit Thailand and Indonesia and a bunch of different islands, and I think about 228,000 people tragically died. There was like a 9.2 earthquake. I think it was the third largest earthquake ever recorded in history, and it created tsunami waves of over 100 feet tall. There's documentaries made about this. There's bunches of photos. There's even been movies made about this catastrophic event. And, and you'll notice when you research at all and hear about this, I mean, all these people are just on these beaches. They're, they're out having a good time. They're enjoying life in the sun. And then what happens? Tragedy strikes. It's just horrible, right? Gut-wrenching. You might say, as I did, man, if only there was a warning. If only there was a warning. Guys, there's even a more severe warning than that here right now. If you can believe that, it's true. It's played out in the image of an axe in verse 9 that says it's laid to the root of the trees. Anyone who doesn't bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. As fire is an image used in multiple ways in the Bible, one of those meanings of that image is judgment, and that's how the image is being used in verse 9. It's, it's communicating something, or in this case, someone that because it's not bearing any fruit, it's just irredeemable, it's too late. And that's what we're supposed to see from that. That when Jesus does return, when he comes back, it will be too late, right? If he were to come today, would, would I be ready? Or would you be ready? Right? You might go, I don't know. How do I get ready? Well, that's John's message. Verse 8 It's to do what? To bear fruits in keeping with repentance, right? It's to repent, which means that you and I need to change our mind about who is God in our lives, but that that change of mind um, delivers a change in action. It's a, it's a complete change in direction. 
And the direction that we change is we turn back to God. That's, that's true repentance. So it's like if you're driving down the road in a car um, with some friends maybe and you're wanting to go to the coast and, and for some reason you get on the highway and you're headed over to the mountain, a friend might say to you nicely, hey, do you know where you're going? I thought we were going to the beach. And you might go, oh, oh yeah, I forgot. And the beach is that way. I'm going the wrong way. And what you could do is you could pull over the car and, and sit there for a second and turn off the car and just kind of be self-deprecating and beat yourself up and be like, I'm so sorry, guys. I wasted all that time, that kind of thing. But let's imagine you turn the car back on and you just keep driving towards the mountain. Okay? I think a lot of us think of repentance that way, that we come to grips with, I'm going in the wrong direction. So we stop, we kind of beat ourselves up for a minute. We say we're sorry. We turn the car back on in our life and we keep going the way we've been going. That's not repentance. Repentance is changing direction completely. It's more than just feeling sorry for what I've done. It's more than an emotional attitude. That's only part of repentance, but it's not real repentance. It's taking the action of turning towards God. And it's evidence that I've done that in living in a different way. And that word evidence is a big word. And that's the word that John's using here. It's the idea of fruit, that there is going to be fruit that comes from our repentance that glorifies God. Um, unless you're a botany expert, you're probably going to look at a lot of trees in your life, especially if you were told there's a fruit tree over there and there's no fruit on it. You have to wait until spring to see the fruit that comes from that tree to know what that tree is. Do you know what I'm saying? Let's just say spring rolls around, you look at that tree and all these cherries are on the tree. You're all going to look at that and go, that's a cherry tree. But let's say someone's sitting next to you and go, um, I know those are cherries, but deep down, that tree is a pear tree, right? I don't know if you've ever done that. Probably nobody, correct? Because we know that if a tree is showing cherries, it's a cherry tree. Even if you say deep down that thing's a pear tree, you could walk around, you're going to look for pears, but if you don't see any pears, we're, we're pretty confident to say that's not a pear tree. That's the same idea that you and I, when we repent, we bear fruit, that it becomes obvious that our repentance is genuine. Okay, so, so what do the crowds say in response to this message to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, change direction and bear this fruit that it's actually genuine in my life? They, they ask John, what shall we do? This is the question that's raised three times in verses 10 through 14. We see the crowds say it, the tax collectors say it, the soldiers say it. And they're, they're not asking, what shall we believe? They're saying, what shall we do? Right? See, real repentance is going to be evidenced, John shows us here, in the way that we treat other people, the way that God calls us to treat other people. It's not merely reflected, although I think this is a huge part of it, it's not just merely going to be reflected in how much more you read the Bible or how much you pray or attend church or something like that. It's going to be evidenced primarily in the way that you and I treat each other in our relationships. So we see this in verse 11, that these crowds are told, what shall, you know, they say, what shall we do? He says, well, if you have two tunics, you only need one. If you see someone who doesn't have a tunic, give them the tunic. Or if someone doesn't have any food and you have more than you need, give them food. That's, that's repentance. Okay? That's, that's a fruit of that. He says to the tax collectors, who we won't go into it now, but Luke will talk about tax collectors a lot, so we'll probably get into it at some point in verse 12. He says, collect only what is due. Don't take more than you need and keep it for yourself. Right? Soldiers in verse 13, don't abuse your power and exploit your position in order to you know, be content with your wages instead. Right? So notice that John does not call either of these people to leave their jobs. Rather, he wants them to act uprightly 
in their jobs. Guys, this is the point. God is a God of righteousness and judgment or justice and love, right? And he calls us to treat others justly and fairly with love. That's what we see happening in these verses. That's what the Old Testament law told them to do. That's what we're told to do. That's, that's imaging God. That's bearing fruit, right? The way that we treat each other. So it's, it's repentance then is worked out in everyday life. Right? It's worked out in our community. It's about everyday living. Real repentance is not just how you and I feel in a moment on a Sunday. Real repentance is, is shown in my life Monday through the next Monday. Okay? So, it, so let me just ask you this morning, is real repentance evident in the spheres of your life? Is it evident in the relationships that are around you? Would you say that your life is marked by repentance? Would you say that? Would you say that? I love England. Um, uh, really love English culture in many ways. Uh, the other day I, I heard a story about a member of the royal family that was going to make an appearance at a university and the university knew that this royal family member was only going to walk down a certain corridor of the university. And so in order to prepare the university for the arrival of this person, this royal, mem- this royal family member, they painted the inside of that corridor. They did it up all nice. But the rest of the university, they didn't touch because the, the royal family member wasn't going to see the rest of the university. And so they just saw the, the corridor with the fresh paint, right? And so they gave the, the appearance it translated to that royal family member that we've done this whole place up for you, but all they did was fix up that one corridor, okay? Right? It wasn't total, right? It wasn't real. It was a superficial preparation for the arrival of that person, right? This is how we're being told to repair here, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, like, like holistic repentance, to truly repent, guys, is to go before God and bear our hearts before Him, knowing that our hearts deceive us and that God actually understands us truly and that He sees everything. That I can't just paint one corridor of my heart and trick God into thinking I've truly repented. No, He sees it all. He travels through every hallway of my heart. That's what He's doing. right? And so you and I, we need to go before God And we say to him in repentance, God, whatever it is, show me where I fall short of your glory. God, show me. Point it out. God, give me that godly sorrow for my sin, but help me to turn to you and begin to follow you and what you're calling me into. Guys, let me be honest with you. Most of the world is not doing this really ever, but right now. But this should be a mark of every single one of God's followers. As when it comes to our lives, are we just adding some fresh paint to an area of our heart to give the appearance of repentance when in all reality nothing's changed? I don't know about you, but I, I can do that. But guys, the king is coming, so our calling is what? To bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It's to have callous knees and contrite hearts and experience a change in direction. That's our calling. But what is it that what John and us can't do? What can John and us not do? Verse 15 through 20. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether, it might, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, 
the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to him all, that he locked up John in prison. So after the people hear John's message and experience his ministry, it says in verse 15 that they were in expectation. In other words, they were kind of perking up and wondering whether John was this long-awaited, promised Messiah that was going to come and bring salvation to God's people, Israel. Okay? And John says in verse 16, basically, um, I'm not him. Because what he says is, I, I can only get you so far. All, all my job is and all I can do is make you aware of your sin. That's, that's what I'm called to do, to do that. But now I'm sorry, there's nothing more I can do. My job is done. It's to call you to repentance. I can't go any further. I'm just, I'm just a finger pointer. That's what I am. He starts by pointing the finger at your and my heart, by calling us to deal with our sin, to, to, to bring it out. And then he points our, his finger to Jesus. So he points his finger to our hearts, and then he points his finger to Jesus, what John is doing. So if John isn't the Messiah, then who is? Right? John's answer expresses who it is, and that's Jesus, right? And he, he ex- describes Jesus' supremeness over his life in a few different ways. The first is that he points to Jesus' higher position. He says what? Jesus is more powerful. He's mightier than I am. And what he's meaning here is not just that Jesus has more power than he does. Of course Jesus does. He's talking about Jesus' um, personal authority over him in his life. He is so great that, that even a prophet is not worthy to untie his sandal, John says. This illustration carries tremendous, tremendous power. There's a rabbinic saying uh, here on the screen that says, every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher, except the loosing of his sandal thong. Right, so specific, but this is what rabbis and their disciples kind of knew as an agreement. And so untying the sandal thong was just too much. That's only something slaves would do. And John says, I'm not even worthy to do that, right? This task was for a slave. And so John is reversing the image here to highlight the gulf between Jesus and all of humanity. It's not that untying Jesus' sandal was too demeaning for John. John's point is that he's not worthy to be that close to Jesus, right? So he talks about the position as being greater. And then he talks about another area of Jesus' superiority is that um, Jesus accomplishes what John can't. John says, my baptism is with water. That symbolizes that your heart is repenting, that you need to repent and receive forgiveness. But what Jesus' baptism does, in a way, his work effectually transforms us, purifies us in order that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit. This idea of Holy Spirit and fire are not two separate things. They go together, and we know that because they're, they're connected with this preposition with. Okay, so Jesus is better because John can only point to the Savior, but Jesus' work accomplishes something that John's can't. He is the Savior. The third and final point of Jesus' superiority 
that marks the difference between John and Jesus is that Jesus is superior because he is the judge who makes distinctions between people. And that's where he goes finally here in verse 17, right? The wheat here, that's this is the image of, of harvest time, which are um, prominent in the Old Testament. And here Jesus has this winnowing fork, okay, which you might imagine eating spaghetti or something, but it's a much larger fork, okay? Um, winnowing was this process where you, you take the grain on the threshing floor, and you throw up into the air, and the wind would blow away the chaff, and the true genuine grain would fall to the ground. So we knew this is, this is the real stuff, and then they would gather that into the barn. But the chaff that blew away, the chaff that blows away, it's, it's useless. It's, it's, got, it's wasted. And so they gather it up and they would burn it, okay? So we have another image here of, of judgment, right? So the key image is that of sifting, the separation that Jesus makes between people. There's no room for universalism in this image. The winnowing fork is in Jesus' hand. And so Luke's point is really clear and crucial. Jesus is greater than John. Why? Because all of us, the entire world, is accountable to Jesus. In his hands, God has placed ultimate authority to sift us. Continues on in verse 18 that John rebukes Herod, similarly to how Elijah rebukes Ahab. And you notice the response here is very different than the responses of the people when they say, what shall we do? Herod doesn't ask that question. Why? Well, people hate to be told the truth about themselves. John's a truth teller. But Herod responds by locking him up and executing him. But John prepares the way for Jesus in this way. Because just a couple of years later, this same King Herod was involved in condemning Jesus to crucifixion. Right? This is, this is the wrong way to prepare for a king. Are we told in verse 18 what? The beginning. This kind of jarring statement. With many other exhortations, John preached the good news to them the gospel to them. It sounds, this whole passage, if you're anything, if we're being honest this morning, right, this sounds like uncomfortable. It sounds like a lot of work, right? This doesn't make me feel like, oh, this is, I'm just receiving something here. This makes me feel like I've got to do better. I've got to, to be better. I've got to be a better person, right? We see this phrase going around all the time right now, be better. It's kind of a, a shaming phrase, you know, like do better, be better. And that's how many of us feel when we read these passages, so when we get to verse 18, it says John's preaching the good news. We go, how is this good news, right? There's fire, there's an ax, there's a fork in Jesus' hand. I mean, there's all this really dreadful imagery that's going on here. So how is this good news? This whole section's about judgment. If we actually receive this word, we don't receive it with joy, we receive it with fear and trembling. Because judgment is not at first sight very good news, but it's a really integral part in the gospel. Unless you and I can be sure that in the end, evil will be decisively overthrown, there is ultimately no good news. If we don't know that evil will be overthrown, that's, that's not good news. Right, so there's a good news aspect in that regard that we know that evil will be overthrown, that Jesus has the fork in his hand, that the axe is laid to the root, that kind of thing, right? But even still, if evil is going to be overthrown and everyone's going to be judged and the winnowing fork is in Jesus' hand and he's going to toss me up into the air, how will I not blow away and prove to be a fake? How, how can I become the real thing? 
true grain of wheat that falls to the ground and is gathered into the eternal barn of God's family. How, how do I know that? Well, here it is, you guys. Listen to this. You see, Jesus, the one who all of creation is being leveled out and paths are being made straight and the red carpet's rolling out to receive, the one who is mightier than John, the one who has the fork in his hand and will rightfully grab the axe and cut down everything that doesn't bear fruit, he's the only one who always bore fruit that glorified his Father. There, there was never one bad apple on the tree of Jesus' life. He's the only one who never needed to repent. He never needed to repent, not even once. And John could never go to Jesus and say to Jesus, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. John couldn't say that. Jesus didn't need it. Yet, by the hands of the most powerful people in the land, he would be sentenced to die. He was the tree, you guys, that was cut down, even though he bore the most abundant fruit of life. He experienced the acts of God's righteous judgment, even though he did no wrong. But his death, you guys, was not a miscarriage of justice. No, it was not. A prison couldn't hold him. Not even the grave could hold him. He rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven. And he has sent the promised Holy Spirit into the hearts of God's people. It's those people who've come to grips with their sin and said, I need a Savior and have turned to God to save them in Jesus. And now the Spirit lives in those who do bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We get baptized and we are refined every single time that we come to grips with our sin and trust in His forgiveness and His provision to save us. Guys, this morning, if you know that you need a Savior, you are offered the only one who can save you. You are offered the only one that you need. So if you do not know Jesus this morning, I plead with you to, to put your faith in Him as your Savior. If you're a Christian this morning and you don't think that repentance should be a part of your life anymore, I pray that you would come to grips with your depravity and sin and see your sufficient Savior and how He's calling us to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Right? When he saves his people, this is the fruit. It's to continually realize I'm going the wrong direction and turn back to God in the way that is exemplified in how we treat one another. If this is us, guys, if we see this in our lives, there is nothing to fear when Jesus returns. Right? We know that we will be gathered into his barn. You know, people have often asked me over the years, you know, what will it take to see a movement of God in our city? There's different places I've even lived, people continually ask that question. What, will it, what do you think it'll take to see a movement of God in our city? And my answer has never changed. What it will take is for people to see their desperate need for a Savior. It's to come to grips with their sin, and to say, I can't, I can't fix this. I need someone to save me. But that's what this passage is calling us to. It's warning us. At the same time, it's warning us. It's inviting us to receive the grace of God from our glorious King that the, that the red carpet was unrolled for. 
that who went to the cross and shed his blood so that when he returns, we'd be gathered into his arms. This is the movement we need. This is what we should be praying for as we look out on a watching world and we see the obviousness of our brokenness and our sin. As there's a lot of uncertainty in our lives, but we are certain about this. The King is coming back. So let's bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Treating one another the way He treats us. Let me end by giving you this benediction from the book of Jude, verses 24 and 25. I pray we would really believe this promise here. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Guys, may we be people who see Jesus increase in our life that we might decrease. May we be people who follow him in bearing fruit and keeping with repentance.